Welcome to Church Birch and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude toward religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. If you are not a reader, you may be tempted to hang up, turn off, or otherwise ignore this show when you hear the title, Inside a Book Doctor. I encourage you not to, because we will look at some things that may confirm suspicions you have about books, or at least we hope we will. Books are a funny thing. Many years ago, I started a church which grew in numbers year after year. Many of our new members were converting to faith after years, if not a lifetime of rather casual attitudes towards God, the church, the Bible, and Jesus himself. Their conversion seemed as authentic as could be, with newfound excitement to learn about God's Word, develop lifestyles as believers, and reform their views of the world and their families. It was exciting. But then something happened. Some of these people started showing up to the church with really weird views and even stranger questions. An inordinate amount of interest in the book of Revelation and Daniel seemed to be the common thread. Where were they getting this stuff? I was the only pastor they had ever had, providing the only teaching they had ever sat under in a church context. Some took this even further and started to become quite judgmental of others who didn't believe the same kind of things they did. Questions concerning the rapture and demon possession arose. It was causing quite a stir. I was befuddled. What was I doing wrong? It caused me no small amount of insecurity and sleepless nights. But it didn't take extraordinary investigative skills to discover that Christian radio, TV, and the Christian bookstores were not my friend as a pastor. With the sincerest of motives, many of these new converts were simply looking to learn more about their faith and tuning in to things to enrich their Christian growth. Books with pretty covers and enticing titles were bought from the local Christian bookseller to supplement what they were getting from their local church. So this young pastor embarked upon a journey to teach discernment to my congregation. Not everything with a cover and the name of Jesus is true. Not everything, everyone with a microphone and a title in front of their name is worth listening to. So how are we to know? How do Christian books get into print? What's the real story? Today, we have one eminently qualified to give us an insider's view. Welcome, book doctor, Dr. Steve Halliday to Church Hurts and. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you, John. Steve, are you really an insider to the Christian publishing world? I mean, can you give us your resume from the back rooms of publishing to editing and writing, making sure it is oh so Christian now. 
Oh yeah. I mean, my, my story with Christian publishing began in 1984, April to be precise. I was an editor at Multnomah Press, which was then in Portland for eight mm-hmm. years. And then when it was sold, uh, the new company asked me if I would be the editorial director. But I was a single, I was a longtime single guy. I'd get married till I was 41 and I was single at that time. And I'd only lived for a very short while for a few months in a little town called Esterville, Iowa, population 8,000. And I was working at a church that summer and the church was great, but the town drove me nuts. And I thought when they offered me this new position, the new publisher that had just bought Multnomah was in Sisters, Oregon, which back then was 800. And I thought, it is beautiful, but if you go there, you will die. So I went freelance. And since then, 1992, I've been working uh, with all kinds of different books, all different kinds of publishers, New York houses, Christian houses, but probably 70% of it, 70, 75, maybe even is with uh, Christian books, Christian publishers, that kind of thing on all sorts of topics. You know, I, I know enough about books to know somebody who's been freelancing, doing what you're doing has to be really good. I mean, that is a hard, hard business. And if one was to Google your name, there are a lot of books with list. You're listed as co-author or editor or contributor with somebody a whole lot more famous than you are. I mean, but there's names there that almost everybody would know. I, I mean, there can't believe how many books by you that I've read and I didn't know you at all. Talk to me about that. It's what's it like being number two? <laughs> well, you know, if, if you really believe that that's what you're gifted for and that's what you can do, then if you, if the Lord enables you to do it, do it. You know, my, before I ever went into books, my undergrad degree was in journalism and Spanish. And I worked for a couple of different newspapers as a newspaper reporter. So the shift to books, I didn't even really start thinking about until before I got into them. But I did get a job at Multnomah Press. Here's a quick story. I didn't really intend on staying in Portland. I'd come from Wisconsin. I was on my way down to the to San Diego to finish up a master's degree. Realized I really didn't want to finish up there and looked for a job. First to- job I was able to find in Portland, Oregon was as a telephone marketer for Multnomah Press. I hate telephone marketing. I'm a terrible salesperson, but it was the first job I could find. I took it. I remember sitting there at the desk, looking at this phone, thinking, I do not want to call another bookstore. Because back then, all the publishers marketed their own books directly to bookstores, warehoused their own books, sent them. After a week and a half, I went into the lady who had hired me, and I said, you are more than gracious in hiring me, but I really hate this job. I'm not doing you any good and it's not <laughs> doing me any good. So if there's another place I can go in the company, that would be great, but I cannot stay here. And then I wound up in the warehouse. That was the first time shipping books. That was the first time it ever con- occurred to me that maybe book editor would be a good job for me. I started praying about it. And almost exactly one year later, they had an opening at Multnomah Press. They asked me to apply. I took it and that's what began this journey. And now in the 36, it'll be 37 year pretty soon. I don't know exactly how many books I've worked on, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 400. And that's anything from just straight editing, line editing a book, to an overview kind of edit, to collaborating, to co-writing, to authoring, to book doctoring, all of that kind of stuff. All right. Name drop for a minute. Uh, Just uh, let's start with Luis Palau and go from there. 
Yeah, um, I always forget because people ask me this, but it's people like Luis Palau, Steve Brown, a friend of yours, uh, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, John Piper, John Maxwell. I'd have to have the list here. It's a long list. And I'm Randy thinking Orange County. So, you know, this is OC Talk Radio. You got a few Orange County authors. I do, and I mean some of the some of the uh, books that I have worked on more recently haven't been through publishers; they've been through self-publishing. And I have several authors now um, who live in Orange County. Steve Perry is one. Uh, he runs the Sacred Harvest Foundation. Um, a good friend, uh, Greg Campbell, used to uh, be one of the co-owners of uh, Colwell Banker Realtors Nationwide. I've done a couple of books with him. Uh, there's several. You have an interesting background. So instead of just talking about books, and I want to ask you about the CD side of publishing because, okay. you know, it gets ugly and we know it. And we like it dirt does. here at Church Hurts and um, <laughs> because we like to get to the and. But I want to start with you being a half breed. Really, you grew up with this uh, self image being told you were a half breed. What's that feel like? Yeah, that story is a little bit incorrect. It's true in a larger sense. Here's what happened my dad never talked about his family. My dad and my mom, when they got married, my dad was not a Christian. My mom was. He never opposed us going to church. He just never went himself. He sent us to church. My mom wanted us to go, so he's the one who sent us. He's the one who put the dime in our pudgy little hands to put in the offering, but he never went unless it was Christmas, Easter, or one of the kids was doing something, you know, performing or whatever. Uh, and I didn't find out about his family for a long time. We would ask him about his mom and dad and growing up on the farm in Minnesota, and he would never answer anything. The only thing I ever heard was that he had a dog named Beaver or something and a horse. That's all I ever heard about. Once I got married and we would visit my parents who would then move back up to Minnesota, Lisa, my wife, would go on walks with them. And he told her more about his family than I had ever heard. And one of the stories was this. His dad, the, we have one picture of his dad. It's a, he's in front of a, the white farmhouse, white picket fence. He's sitting on a buckboard, and he looks like the angriest person in the universe. And it turns out that he may have been. He was mostly Irish. Uh, his dad basically forced him to marry his choice, who was a Norwegian. And he considered his kids, they had eight half-breeds, and he would tell them that. He would not allow them to sit on his lap, except for the very youngest one. And so most of them escaped as soon as they could. My dad, I think, did a tremendous job as a father, even though he didn't come to faith until late in life. But when I heard about that background, I thought he, he did remarkably well, given the background that he had. Man, I still, it's amazing in the generational thing that happens. And, and you've, you've seen some of that in some of the history in, in books, but let me um, before we move on. Let me let me just take a moment uh, to remind our listeners that my work is with Standing Stone. It's a ministry that cares for others who give their lives uh, to care for people, and it's uh, ministering to ministers, and it's wholly supported by your generous contributions. If you would like uh, to become a part of our regular support team. Um, now, particularly now, when that work is so needed, just go to churchhurtsand.org to find out more. And with that, crass direct plug, Steve, uh, people can find out more about you at hothouseenterprises.com. Right. 
Right. You're not real active, but they don't see it. They, you don't even list all your books on that site, but we're going to get into some of what you're going to do um, even in the days ahead. But I wanted to mention, pick out the one you mentioned. You um, were involved with a book called Scandalous Freedom by Steve Brown, and that was really a controversial book for some people. Yeah. Uh, what was, was it like to work on. with Steve? Steve is great. I mean, Steve, the first thing I think he told me that he has the perfect face for radio. I mean, he's got this deep, wonderful voice, but he always says he has the perfect face for radio. Take that for whatever you mean it. Working with Steve, though, was a real pleasure and a lot of fun because even though he's dealing with really, really important topics, I mean, faith-shaping topics, life-shaping topics, all of those kinds of things, he doesn't ever take himself too seriously. And I knew that as soon as I met him and saw some of the other things he was involved with. He, I don't know if he still has it with COVID, but they used to have an annual retreat for pastors who were getting burned out or were just having a difficult time. And he called it a retreat for poop pastors or something like that. I mean, that is not something that you would expect a, an austere Presbyterian to host. But he did. And that book, I thought for a long time, they ought to go through, the, the publisher ought to go through that book and find some of those real short gems. He has these little stories or really fun ways, interesting ways, memorable ways of saying things and excerpt it into a smaller book as a little gift book. And I thought that thing would do really, really well. But that Scandalous Freedom was, um, was just, is one of those books that you just mark in your head. There's a lot of books of the 400 some that I've done that frankly, I don't even remember anymore. That is not one of the ones I don't remember. Right. Hey, tell me this. I, you know, I was, in addition to being a senior pastor, um, I held the role of singles minister for years. So somebody like you, I know, who didn't get married till 41, I mean, that must have been a big deal. And I'm suspecting that you thought when you finally got married that life was just going to be smooth going. Tell me about Lisa and how how easy and perfect life has been since you found marriage. <laughs> you know, easy and perfect are not the words. However, with Lisa, I'm sure it's been a lot easier than it would have been. I suspected, because many of the books that I had done before we ever got married, I was 41. Lisa is about nine years younger than I am. In fact, we got married the day before she turned 32. She probably hates me for that. I won't tell you the year, so you can't figure it out. When we first started dating, it was through the church I was going to. I had been on the elder board there, Sunset Presbyterian in Portland. We had, I had some wonderful years there, was on the speaking team, periodically would uh, go down to the large discipleship, or not discipleship, the large uh, college and career age class, which is 300 people or something, and teach. And one morning I went down there and taught and saw her, and I thought, hey, and she was in a little sketch. She's very uh, gifted dramatically, and I thought, I'd like to meet her. But I was traveling a lot, and so didn't call for probably two months. And when I did call, she wasn't home. And back then we had answering machines. And uh, I first, the first time I called, I just said, Hey, this is Steve Halliday. Would like to know if I don't even, I don't know if I asked her, would you like to go on a date? I don't remember what I said, but when she got the note, she thought, Oh, here's this real conservative guy. He probably wants me to do something in a church service. <laughs> and so she calls me back and that time I wasn't home. So she left a message. And so when I called back and this was the thing that happened now for quite a few times. She wasn't there. And this time I decided to leave a message in one of my ethnic accents. I have a pretty good ear. 
And if I listen long enough, I can usually duplicate an accent. That's one of the reasons why I did the double major in Spanish, because I just, I like the way other languages sound. And so when I called her back, I left a message in one of these voices. And she got that and went, wait a minute, maybe this is not the stiff, conservative person I thought. And she called me back and I was gone. So she left a message because she does some of the same thing. But because I had done so many marriage books, edited them before we ever got married, I knew some of the pitfalls and so forth that were coming. And so when we finally got married, I expected that it was going to be very, very difficult. And I'm sure more of this has to do with her than me, but it wasn't. It was a much smoother transition than I thought. Now, when you've been a bachelor for 41 years, wait wait a second. I was going to say, let let me just say, so I'm, I'm getting the picture. You're, you're married now. You've been an editor involved in Christian books on marriage and on a lot of other stuff. I mean, so you have like all the material and wisdom um, our listeners think that they should have from reading some. I mean, you've written more books than a lot of people have read. And so with all of that knowledge and all of that wisdom and a vibrant Christian faith, somehow you decided whoa, life just started to fall apart for you. I bet what a treat for her. What, what happened? Why did you, why did you fall apart to tell me that? Yeah, that was several years later. That was uh, back in uh, 2008. I'd been working in publishing by then for 25 years or something. And uh, I started seeing all these books that I can't use the phrase as much now, but back then I used to call them me too books. And by that I meant I've seen this book 13 times before. It's just somebody else's illustrations and stories, but it's the same content. And I thought, do I really want to spend the rest of my career working on those kind of books? And the answer was no. So Lisa and I started talking and praying about what do we do? And over a period of a couple of years, we decided maybe I should go back to school. I hadn't been in school for 20 years, decided to get my PhD in communication, ended up going to Regent University And we had to postpone it a year for financial reasons. And Lisa's mom got breast cancer and all the kinds of stuff that happens in life. And so we started, we went in 2008. And one of the things I had done was to set up a financial plan that we could make it because I'm paying for it. And grad school is not cheap. So I had two big projects. One was a Bible project with Chuck Smith. Another was a, a big project with Franklin Graham. That was going to carry us through the year. We were going to be back at Regent. And about a month before we were to go, both of them fell through. And I thought, what on earth does that mean? We believe that we're supposed to go there. This was going to take us, and now that's pulled out from under us. What do we do? And my mom was a great worrier. And my dad, I found out later in life, had a lot of anxiety about finances. Well, I got those genes. And from that point on, I started questioning, why are we doing this? I mean, I know in general, I want to explore different things, expanded things of what I can do professionally, but how am I going to pay for it? And I got more and more unstable. There's a long, long story, but basically what happened once we got back to region, I fell apart. When Lisa came back, and by then we had two girls. One was three, one was one and a half. When Lisa touched down in Norfolk, at the airport, there was somebody there holding a sign saying Lisa Halliday. She went with them and she found me in the emergency room at Chesapeake hospital. 
and I was a mess. And it got worse from there. That was August 1st. By the first part of September, we had some good friends that we met there, and they're still really, really good friends. He's a tremendous counselor. Uh, he was regent to go to school for counseling. But he said, you've got to get him to the hospital. He's not going to pull out of this by himself. And so I went in thinking I was going to be there for three to four days, and I ended up being there almost two weeks. Because when you get that low, I mean, I had been diagnosed with acute anxiety and clinical depression. You can't just decide one day you're going to pull out of it. It does not work that way. And the reason I was there for almost two weeks is they had to find the right medication that at least stopped the progression of it. And so the rest of that first semester, the whole, every single day, I would say to Lisa, why are we here? We don't know why you're here. Let's go home. And she would say, rightly so, I'm glad she did. We both believe God wants us here. We're here. Let's try to make it work. And she focused me like a laser on what I had to do that day. Because I came the first class I had, the syllabus was probably an inch thick. And I remember telling her explicitly, I couldn't do this if I was well. How am I going to do this now? And she would say, well, what do you have to do next? Well, I know that, but look, no. What do you have to do next? I understand that, but no. What do you have to do next? And by keeping me focused just on what is that next thing, we not only got it through, got through that class and that first semester kept us there. And as it turned out, I think uh, one of the main reasons why God had us there, that had we gone home, I never would have found out. You know, isn't it amazing how somehow in our head we end up thinking that if we have a real faith, we're not going to go through deep depression, that you shouldn't have that story to tell because you should have had more faith. But Man, it was it was serious for you. I mean, you oh, didn't just was, pull out of it after two weeks in the hospital either, oh, did heavens, you? No, no. I mean, it it, it took you know that, that that five months, that first five months was the worst, darkest time of my life. And there was a point at it where I even told myself, "There's no way you can be a Christian." It's not like I ever came to a point where I said I denied any of the Christian essentials. That never happened. I just thought you've deceived yourself for fifty mm -hmm. years. You never were a Christian. How could you be a Christian and do this? Da, 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 da. And that's where, I mean, theology is a double-edged sword. I mean, right theology is good. It's helpful. It's, it brings you, it helps to bring you to health. But you can wield it in a way that has the opposite effect. So I can trace now where this started happening. It was on the trip out to Virginia Beach from Portland, Oregon. Uh, and fortunately... A friend of mine had asked two weeks before we left if I would like a company. We went out there. And this is the kind of guy, his name is Pat. But you give him a job, he's going to get the job done regardless. Well, I started falling apart on this car, and I was a crazy man. I was talking about, let's turn around. I think we need to go to the hospital. I need to find out what's wrong. Man, it was nuts. And it was every other day is, this is a good idea. We should go the very next day. This is crazy. What are you doing? You need to turn around. And he dealt with that the whole way. But his task was to get me to Virginia Beach. So he didn't turn around. Again, I think that's one of the Lord's provisions, although at the time I didn't like him for it. But on that trip out, the thought that hit me was, you know what? You're one of the Israelites who's refusing to go into the promised land. God has called you here. You don't want to go. You're afraid. You must not be a Christian. And that thought hit me at the beginning of the trip. And by the end of the trip, I was convinced that was true. And that's part of what made that time so difficult. 
but we don't have time to get into the details. You ended up getting awards, getting a full scholarship, all that kind of stuff. And moving on with your work, I want to just get that inside a little bit of the dirt um, that you came around as you started to work with more people. You saw from 2008 on, even before, more um, publishing really was more about a transaction. I, I think the average person thinks that, wow, if you're a really good writer, help us uh, figure that one out, if you will. Uh, yeah. What's uh, really the scoop? I'll go quick as I can. When I started in publishing, it was 1984. And back then, there wasn't much of something that is now called platform publishing. Multnomah Press, although even then there was a bit of that, our top authors were probably Chuck Swindoll, Jim Dobson, and Max Licato. But there were a lot of other authors. Most of the stuff we published were not people that were known. You know, they would come over the transom. We would talk to somebody. would say, would you like to do this? Because we believed in the message. So it was Swindoll and Dobson and Licato and later John Piper and some others who helped, you know, pay the bills. But we weren't looking necessarily for people with big platforms. We were looking for people who had what we thought were important messages. That started changing longer the time went on. And by 2008, when we went to school, that was when the first big crash happened. And from that point on, publishing really took a switch. Every single publisher, whether it's a New York house or Christian house, now is what I would call a platform publisher because they lost so much money during that time. They laid off staff, they cut their lists, they cut their backlists. And they figured that the way to deal with this is you now go after people who have large platforms, whether it's the senior pastor of a mega church or a athlete who has a national platform or somebody who has a nationwide radio ministry or workshop ministry, whatever. Because they figured, and I think rightly so from an economic standpoint, if we get their books, whether they're that great or not, they're automatically going to sell ten to 20,000 copies, and at least we won't lose money on it. So from when I started in publishing, and this is a guess, this is nothing scientific, but we probably did maybe 15% of our books were what I'd call platform books. Now, easily, it's probably 95% at every publisher. So if you don't have a large platform, the chances of getting published, they're not impossible, but they're highly, highly improbable. And so reality is, it is a financial transaction saying, you're bringing us the audience, we'll publish your book, and it doesn't even have to be that good if you can bring the audience, right? Sadly, that is true. I mean, there are some publishers are more that way than others, but all of them are now, all traditional publishers basically, are platform publishers. So some of them are only going to look for people with large platforms who really will line up with what they want to do. But more and more, if this thing is going to sell and this person has a name, we'll, we'll buy it. I mean, in a lot of these folks, and this is where I come in, so I have to be careful that I don't cut off my own hand. But some of these folks who do have a, a good message either don't have the time to write it or they don't have the skills to write it. And so they bring in somebody like me who collaborates with them. I've never done, people always ask me, you know, you're a ghostwriter, right? And I'll always say no, because a ghostwriter is somebody that's brought in. They just write the book for the person. They don't necessarily get any content from them. 
They just write the book. Their name doesn't appear anywhere. Hence, they're a ghost. Right. They'll get paid well, but it's the other person's book, even though they didn't do anything. I'll never do that, but I do a lot of collaborating. And yet sometimes on some collaborating books, there are sections where it's me. It's not <laughs> them necessarily. So I'm gonna, I want one more quick story from you again. We're going to have to run. Our time is up, but reality is people who want to write, I want to say to them, go ahead and write because your kids are going to want to hear it. Some friends might want to hear it. Just don't really have big illusions and, and, unless, uh, unless you have a name uh, out there, the chance of getting published pretty slim. That's the bad news you bring to us today, right? It is, and yet here's the other side of it, and there's a flip side to it. If you really have your heart set on being published by a traditional publisher, if you don't have a platform, the chances are nil. On the other hand, we live in an era where because of digital technologies, it's easier than ever to write a book and have it published. And you can find people like me who help with, with the editorial or people who help with the graphics, you know, the covers and all of that. I've done many of those in the last few years. The key question for me is always when I ask, when somebody asks to meet with me, uh, when I was at a much larger church and I spoke, people would, knew that I was in publishing. And so they would, I periodically get these requests. I have this idea for a book. Could you meet with me? And I had a standing law for me that I always did. I always met with and didn't charge them anything for that first one. 90% of them didn't really have a book. They, what they really wanted to hear was that they were okay. You know, you're an okay person. You're a good person. They didn't really have a book, but 10% really did. And so they would get this speech. If you think the Lord is really leading you to lead this, who am I to tell you he's not? But if you think that by writing this, you're going to become a millionaire, let me disabuse you of that probability. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to say, go to hothouseenterprises.com because there's a way to get in touch with you if people want to pursue that. Uh, but let me say this before we close, and thank you so much, Steve. 500 years ago, the famed Renaissance scholar and defender of Rome against the rebellious Martin Luther, Erasmus of Rotterdam, said once, when I have a little money, I buy books. And if I have any left, I buy food and clothes. I get that. Wisdom provided by books over the ages is hard to overstate. Books have provided us ways to learn from others without being in their presence, travel the world without leaving a room, explore fields of science and art, which can just take our breath away. Unfortunately, books don't come with a testing kit for truth. Just because it's in print doesn't make it right or wise or even worth your time digesting. Just because you like a person who's written the book doesn't make it right either. No matter how much knowledge you have, how many facts you have consumed, I just mentioned Erasmus, a famous Dutch theologian, philosopher, recruited by Rome to respond to the claims of Martin Luther. Erasmus had a mastery of the language, pure Latin, virtually unequaled in his day, such a broad range of knowledge that most consider him to be one of the greatest scholars of the Northern Renaissance. Interestingly, he chose to engage Luther on the subject of predestination with his book, The Libero Arbitrio, or the freedom of the will. Luther's response came in the form of his book, The Bondage of the Will, one of my favorite books of all time. 
It is engaging, surprisingly easy to read, and nothing short of profound. Early in the book, Luther comments about Erasmus's writing style and content. It was words he said in a simple, if not crass manner. Quote, I thought it outrageous to convey material of such low quality in the trappings of such rare eloquence. It is like using gold or silver dishes to carry dung. Well, I could end there with a, the bit of humor I hope you heard. I'm reminded that people of the church are to choose their words wisely. It's easy to critique the works and words of others while having a tongue yourself untamed. Let's remember in the analysis with 15, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. May your words flow with grace today and bless those in your presence, no matter what you read. It's worth a thought. For Church Hurts and this is John Bash. Go and enjoy God today. Well, that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts and Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement of the divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is the Shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchfirstand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, church hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end and enjoy God today, won't you?